Well, why don't you join me uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 this morning as we conclude our mini-series called Money Matters. And I want to take a brief moment to invite all of you to join us after the service for our remodel celebration lunch in the chapel. I uh, would love to have all of you join us. There's plenty of food, like plenty of food. And so I'd encourage you to be there for that. Good times of fellowship, that's where we build memories as a church family, and so I'd love to have you join us. We've got room for you. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, gun lovers and gun owners in here, and so you're going to be familiar with the name Winchester. I mean, if you've heard that name, Winchester, very long-standing manufacturer of rifles and other things. As you can imagine, with a company like that that had military contracts and stuff and was on the cutting edge of rifle technology even back in the 1800s, Winchester was worth a lot of money. So if you marry into the Winchester family, you are destined to get a lot of money. Well, Sarah Winchester, many years ago, married one of the heirs of the Winchester inheritance, William Winchester. But when William died at the age of 43, massive sums of the Winchester fortune were left to Sarah Winchester and they had no kids. And so all of this money was hers to use however she wanted. In an effort to get to warmer weather, maybe dealing with some mental health struggles, Sarah moved to Southern California where she bought a modest farmhouse on a nice plot of 40 acres. But soon out of a desire to make her house bigger, and bigger and bigger, some say maybe to do some superstition going on, Sarah started endlessly remodeling her house, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, at one point, Sarah Winchester employed 13 people full-time whose full-time jobs were adding on and adding on to the Winchester mansion. Eventually, that modest farmhouse you see in the picture there turned into a 24,000-square-foot mansion which is what it is today. The Winchester Mansion has 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 160 bedrooms, y'all, 40 staircases, and my favorite, 47 fireplaces. That's a lot of fire. And what's even crazier than all that to me is with 160 bedrooms, you wanna know how many bathrooms the Winchester Mansion has? 13. 13 bathrooms. I don't know who was in charge of that. Now, if that's absurd to you, if you were to visit the Winchester Mansion, which actually my wife has visited it, you would find that the the house is full of staircases that lead to a door that opens up to nothing. There are windows in the floor. Doors that lead to nowhere. The the mansion is huge, but it is built with absolutely no purpose in mind. How could a huge, multi-million dollar mansion have such dumb design features? Well, the reality is, is that Sarah Winchester embarked on a construction project that never had a plan. She just kept adding and adding and adding. There were no blueprints, no formal design. And so walls were added in one place without ever thinking about how it might affect the next wing of the house. Now, what does this have to do with us as we talk about money matters? Here's what we learned from Sarah Winchester. Ambition without specific direction 
will rarely accomplish what it intends. You and I can have all sorts of good desires, but if those good desires aren't channeled into a specific plan, then those good desires often never happen. Would you agree with that? That's not just true for money. It's true for exercise and motivations to be a blessing to somebody. But if you never really plan on how you're going to bless somebody, it just never happens. I hope throughout the last two weeks, if you've been here or listened to it on the podcast, my heart, and, and I hope what the word of God has done is it has inspired you to live with a heart of generosity. The Bible tells us that our money matters. What we do with it matters because first of all, our money is his money. You don't get to decide. It's his money and he decides with it. Last week, which maybe is one of my favorite passages we covered, we talked about that money matters because riches come with responsibility. That a dollar given is a dollar stored up for rewards in the next life. But we've really never throughout this series... And honestly, very rarely, if at all, from the pulpit in this church, have we stopped to answer this question. How much should a person give to honor the Bible's commands about generosity? Now, that question has spurred debate in the church world for years. Some will argue that you need to give a tithe if you want to be generous, that if you give 10% of your gross income, you are being generous. And I think to some degree that's true, but what you and I are gonna find this morning is that's far too simplistic of an answer. There are also some who say, well, we don't live under the law where it tells us to give 10%. I'm gonna debunk that in a minute. But we, we live under grace and therefore you, pastor, don't get to tell us how much to give. That, my friend, is also not true. What I want us to do is this morning, I want us to survey what the New Testament says about giving. And maybe if you're here this morning, you say, well, uh, I, we live under grace and not the law. I want you to ask yourself, when was the last time Jesus told you to do something that was easier? Well, probably never. And this morning, though we have six questions we're gonna ask ourselves about our giving, all of what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is talking about when it comes to generosity falls under this one idea. And I phrased every point every week, money matters because, and here's what this morning's message is about. Money matters because Christ's extravagant generosity informs our monetary giving. Money matters because Christ's extravagant generosity informs our monetary giving. Let's say that together as a church family. Ready, begin. Money matters because Christ's extravagant generosity informs our monetary giving. If you've received our Sunday preview emails, you know we're surveying 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We're not going to read the whole text. But what I want you to do this morning is I want to give you six questions to ask yourself about your giving. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we look at God's word and we ask ourselves six questions, that you and your spouse or you, uh, or just you, if it's just you in the household, can leave with these six questions and leave with a plan to be generous based on God's word. And the first question really comes from the heart of the text this morning. And it's this. If we want to know how much we should give, we should ask ourselves this question. How much did Christ 
give for you. At the heart of our text this morning is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. As Paul is commanding this church to be generous in their giving to some less fortunate believers, he says this in verse number 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was, what's the next word? Rich. Let's try that again. Though he was rich, okay, We'll try a little bit better on this next one. Yet for your sakes, he became what? Poor. He was rich, but yet for your sakes, he became poor. Why? So that you essentially could be enriched. Christ, how much did he give? 10%? 20%? 50%? Well, what verse 9 says is he gave everything. He gave everything he had so that you could have everything he had. He became poor to enrich you and I spiritually. And we know the story, don't we? That Christ as an innocent sacrifice died on the cross, not because he committed sins, but because you committed sins. He left heaven, not because he got kicked out, but because you got kicked out. And he bankrupted himself, not because he deserved it, but he died so that you and I could live. And as Paul is thinking about this idea of generous giving, his mind over and over and over again goes back to Christ. Throughout these chapters, he's exhorting the Corinthians to give a gift. That's the term he uses. Give a gift to the poor saints at Jerusalem. And as he wraps up this topic about giving, in chapter number nine, verse number 15, he thinks back again to what the best example of a generous gift could be. Look at chapter nine and verse number 15. What does he say? Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Paul says, you wanna know what it looks like to give a generous offering? Look at Christ. What does generosity look like? How much should you and I give? Well, the the biblical answer to that is you should give how much Christ gave, everything. That is the example of generosity that's been given to us. The example of our generosity is the king of heaven bankrupting himself for you. This morning, I want to say this to every believer in here, generous or not. Deciding the amount you may give is best informed by a picture of Jesus, not a percentage of income. If you want to know how much you give, stop measuring yourself by a percentage. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm going to actually exhort you to give proportionately to your income. But I'm saying for some of us, it's far too shallow of an assessment. That when the Bible exhorts us to give, it calls us to look at Christ because Christ all throughout his gospels is not telling us to give 10%. What does he tell Zacchaeus? He says, go and give sevenfold what you've stolen. He, He tells the rich man who comes to Jesus and says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What does he tell him? Go sell 10% of what you have and give it to the poor. No, what does he say? Sell it all, 100%. Jesus, when he calls his disciples to follow him, he doesn't say, pick up your cross, give me 10% and follow me. What does he say? Deny yourself, 
Everything about you takes a back seat when you are one of my disciples. And so if you and I want to assess what we should give, what you should ask yourself, not just a percentage, but you should look at that bloody king of kings hanging on a cross, giving his life for you and ask yourself, what do I have to give to look like that? What does it look like for me to put my ambitions and my desires on a cross? What does it look like to deny myself? Because the reality is for some of us in here, maybe to give 10% would, would be like putting yourself on a cross. It'll take sacrifice. It'll take planning. It'll take preparation. But for some of you, you've done that for 40 years. I'm not saying like that money's like not needful. I'm just saying over time, I'm just speaking for myself too. 10%, it's like, I don't have to put myself on a cross to give that. So if you want to know how much you should give, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Now, some of us would say this, well, Pastor Mike, I mean, of course Jesus gave everything. Yeah, that's Jesus. What are you telling me? You give 100% of my income, you're out of your mind. Maybe Jesus gave that, but ordinary Christians who have house payments and insurance and kids and all this stuff, we can't give that. Well, that, that, would, be, that would be a great thought, except every other human being in the Bible that's given to us as an example of giving would disagree with you. Because what we see in the Bible over and over and over again are multiple extravagant examples of generosity. Now, I won't take much time on this, but I want you to ask yourself the second question. When assessing your giving, ask yourself this. What is the biblical example of generosity? What is the biblical example of generosity? Now, I won't spend much time here, but I want us to think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament. It's, it's helpful for us to go back to the Old Testament, at least as a reference point. Now, it took me a lot of time to survey all of the laws concerning giving because there was a lot of giving that was going on in the Old Testament. Just read the Torah. You'll come to understand that pretty quickly. Many times when you and I think about the tithe, what percentage do we automatically assign to the tithe? 10%. Well, that's actually what it means. One-tenth tithe. But what you and I often forget is actually the Old Testament saints were not commanded to give one tithe they were commanded to give three tithes. Two tithes annually and one tithe every three years. Which if you do some quick math, what that averages out to is before all the free will offerings that God commanded them, the Old Testament Israelites were giving 23% of their income off the top. And then they had all these free will offerings. If you want to read a good example of one, it's Exodus 35 to 36, because you're thinking, well, if I had to give 23% of my income, you know what my free will offering is going to be? It's going to be about a dollar, because I don't have much left over, right? But then you read Exodus 35, and they gave so much, even after giving 23% of their income, that Moses had to say, stop bringing stuff. Now, I don't know about you. I've never known a pastor who had to do that. What does the Old Testament show us? It shows us that God's people gave a lot of money. Now, what I want to say this morning, before you think you know where I'm going, is that I don't necessarily think that those tithes are, are abiding on Christians today. Because again, there's, no, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that says you need to give 10%. No, the Old Testament demanded 23% of their income, and some of that was supporting the closest thing they had to a federal government. But here's what you need to stop yourself and ask, okay, before you think I'm going to make it easier on you. The Old Testament, they're given 
plus percentage of their income. When we start reading the New Testament, what we find out pretty quickly is that the New Testament idea of generosity is certainly not cheaper. Look at verse number one in 2 Corinthians chapter number eight. Paul tells the church at Corinth about a church in Macedonia. We assume the church of Philippi. He says, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a trial of great affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep what? Poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Paul says, here's a broke church who gave not just what I thought was proportionate to what they had, but he says in verse number three, they gave beyond their capacity to give. They gave disproportionately. In fact, verse number four, some of y'all wrap your head around this. This broke church, Paul didn't even ask them for money. And because he didn't ask them for money, these poor people were begging Paul so that they could give to the offering for the saints at Jerusalem. So we have this church at Macedonia giving way above and beyond, even though they are very, very poor. Well, that's just one church. Well, let's look at the church of Jerusalem, the one that was poor at this time. But look at their example of generosity in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. It says, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. Ask yourself this question. What percentage were they giving there? A hundred percent. And they laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. So we've got a broke church giving way more than broke people should give. We've got a church with some people who have investment properties. Well, that's, that's a pretty wealthy person, someone who's doing well. They have extra land or extra rentals and they're selling them and giving them to the church to distribute to people in the church who had great need. They're giving a hundred percent of the income for it. Well, then you keep looking at the New Testament and we have other examples of extraordinary sacrifice and generosity. We have the widow who cast in all that she had. We have a poor church who willingly contributed to a generous offering in their poverty. And we have this church that's giving away 100% of their investments. When we look at the biblical example, here's what we, we have to come to a conclusion. That the Bible over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, is calling you and I as followers of Christ to radical generosity, radical generosity. Now, you might say, well, that sounds utterly unrealistic, Pastor Mike. Well, let me be a little bit realistic with you now. Here's the third question you ask. If you want to assess what you should give, ask yourself this question. How has God enabled you to give? How has God enabled you to give? Look at 2 Corinthians 8 verses 13. If the New Testament ever dialed in a very specific amount you should give, here's the, here's the ceiling of giving. Okay, you ready for it? It's not a percentage, but you got to follow me. Look at verse, chapter 8 verse 13. He says this to the church at Corinth who had some rich people in it. He says, I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened. Here's what Paul's saying here. What is the maximum that God wants us to give? He says, well, here's how you know you've given too much. If you're giving so much that you need charity, you're giving too much, okay? That's what the Bible says. That's when it goes too far, okay? So I'm not asking you to give 100% and now live in need of charity. 
The Bible's saying if you wanna know how much you should give, here's the maximum. Don't give so much that you need charity work. But then in verse number three, he seems to admit this, that every believer has a certain power to give. Do you see that in verse number three? Speak of the church of Macedonia, he says, to their power I bear record, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. So what Paul's recognizing in verse number three is that all of us have a different power or ability to give. And I think if we all laid our salaries out on the table, that would be true. We all have different amounts of money we're bringing in, and some of us have higher expenses than others, right? You got kids in the house, it's, it's a little bit more expensive generally than it does when you're an empty nester. Well, that's not the only biblical evidence that tells us that we're supposed to give proportionately to what we have. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says this, that upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, listen to this phrase, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. I think that is very clear, that Paul was expecting the church to give proportionately to their income. More prosperity, more giving. Less prosperity, you follow the logic? What? Less what? Giving. More left over, more what? Giving. Less left over, less. All right, we're following it. As God has prospered you. Uh, See, this is why I think we all, why a proportionate amount is helpful because percentages are the same for everybody. But we need to recognize is that all of us have a different amount of which God has prospered us. There are some in here who have single income households and some who have dual income households. Some of us have received a raise. Some of us have taken a pay cut. Some of us have more margin in our life because expenses have gone down and therefore the Bible calls us to consider giving more because God has prospered us more. And I think for all of us in here, all of us privileged people, it might be helpful for us to stop and realize that you and I, I don't care who I'm looking at. Some of y'all are like, you're not looking at me when you say this. No, I'm looking at everybody. That you are part of the one of the most prosperous people in the history of mankind. You are living at one of the most prosperous times in history, with one of the highest incomes in history, in one of the richest countries in history. Every one of y'all. You know how I know that? Because if you consider what is poverty in the U.S. versus somewhere else, it is totally, totally different. I think some of us, some of you here in the older generation, you could probably recognize that the younger generation that is coming up lives a completely different lifestyle than you had to. Am I right? I mean, I don't know about you. When I grew up, I thought richness was like eating out like twice a month. And now it's like, you know, people apparently have enough money to do that way more than that now, right? And the type of comforts and luxuries that we have now is totally different than it was 50 and 75 years ago. And so what what I wanna challenge you with, younger generation especially, is that what we need to recognize is that it's so easy for us to fit giving in at the end of our budget And to recognize that there are things that we put in front of giving that shouldn't be in front of giving. We spend on on things that are not more important than laying up treasures in heaven for ourselves. And so God is not just saying, well, just see how much is left over and that's how much you should give. Now here's where I'm gonna lay my cards on the table, okay? This is gonna be a little awkward for me, but I hope it'll be edifying and helpful to you. My wife and I have experienced various amounts of incomes throughout our 10 years of living together. 
and uh, not including what we had before that. I have never, in my history of working, received higher than the median household income of the area we lived in, ever. We started out when we were married, we both worked 30 hours a week as bank tellers, making 10 bucks an hour or so. And we paid for our own college, had a little bit of help from her parents on hers, but for the most part, we paid for our own college. We had an apartment, normal cost. And so I, I wanna challenge you this way, when you're trying to assess what you should give, I'm just gonna speak from my personal experience. I don't know your life circumstances. You may have child support or some other things you've gotta pay that we never had to deal with. But my wife and I, at the very poorest, which definitely that first year was the very poorest we've been, um, we have been able to give 10 plus percent of our income to the Lord at all times. Now, sometimes to God's glory, we've had more. We've had more um, margin. So we've given upwards of 20% sometimes. That's a blessing. I only say that for those of you in here because that's not boastful. I mean, R.G. Letourneau gave 90% of his income away. That's something maybe you could boast about. I certainly don't think what we've given is anything boastworthy. I say this to those in here who think that they can't afford to give. Now, I'm just saying from my personal experience, when we had nothing, we were able to give 10 plus percent to the Lord every single time. So how are you able to do that? Well, we've chosen, again, I'm not boasting, I'm just trying to help those who don't know how to start. Sometimes to give, here's what you have to do. I know some of you believe this because you practice it. You have to live a no-frills lifestyle if you value generosity. If you wanna put radical generosity into your life as a Christian, it does call you to adjust something. Jesus never said, fit me into your life where, where you have room. No, Jesus said, put me in your life and then make room for whatever else is left over. And so what God has enabled us to give may not be the same as what he's enabled you to give, but there are some in here who maybe would have far more than we've ever had and would be able to give more. And here's what I wanna to say too, and I'll get this to the end. Why have we done that? Because like I said last week, there are eternal rewards in store for those who give generously in this life. Now, some of you are like, okay, let me look at my budget. We've got this much in our restaurant category, this much in our clothes category, and we've got 20 TV subscriptions, and okay, I think we could fit this. Well, before you think you've got it settled, ask yourself this question. What does it look like to excel in giving? That's our next question. Write it down. What does it look like to excel in giving? The Bible says if we wanna know how much to give, then we should look at what it looks like to excel. Look at verse number seven of chapter eight. It says, therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, that's how we talk, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us. See that ye abound in this grace also. What is verse seven telling us? It's telling us that it's God's grace that enables us to grow in our faith. It's God's grace that enables you to grow in your diligence. It's God's grace that enables you to grow in your ability to use your words for Christ. But what verse number seven is saying this, that in the same way as a pastor or as a Christian, you want your faith to grow this year, God wants your generosity to grow. 
In the same way, God wants you to be continually growing as a Christian in every other spiritual discipline. God doesn't want you to put all those other disciplines in this box. Well, I hope I grow in my prayer this year, but giving, I'm not gonna even think about it. I'm okay, I've I've done the 10% thing, I'm good. No, what God wants us to do is he wants us to continually be growing and excelling in that discipline of giving. I'll say this to some of you uh, well-seasoned, generous givers, like I had to ask myself this week, when was the last time you took a hard look at your giving? When was the last time you took a hard look at your giving? When was the last time you increased your generosity? I'll say this, increasing our generosity doesn't always mean giving more. My wife and I, we, we actually had less to give when we came here. Some different things changed in our expenses and our income. Had a house payment, that changes the thing. And so we had to lower some of our extra giving above 10%. But I'll tell you what, it's at least as much sacrifice as it was before. So I'm not saying you have to grow your money in giving to be more generous. For sometimes that means growing your percentage because your expenses change and your things like that change. But I want to tell all of us to, to ask ourselves this question, what would it look like for me as a Christian to continue growing in my generosity? Because the Bible wants to give us a framework for how we give. It at least expects us to continue growing in it. What does it look like to excel? Now here's the next question. Number five. What needs must be met in and through the church. What needs must be met in and through the church? Look at verses 13 through 14. Paul's calling to the attention to these Corinthians the need that they were giving to. Verse number 13, I mean not that other men be eased. Look at verse 14, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want. He's talking about spiritual rewards there, that there may be equality. The Bible, when it talks about how we should give, listen, the New Testament may not throw a percentage at us like the Old Testament did for the Old Testament saints, but here's what it does. It says, here are the things the church should be funding and the Christians are expected to meet that. I think there are three things that the Bible calls us as a church to fund. And I actually think they match up really well with the Old Testament tithe laws. Number one, the Bible calls us to fund, this is implied, but the overhead of worship. One of the tithes in the Old Testament was for funding worship festivals every year, right? So I think that's like overhead expenses of the church. Number two, the Bible also says that and this is in Acts 4.35 that we read earlier, that the church fund should care for the poor and needy, especially within the church. Now, some of the dynamics are different these days because uh, we've got other programs that our taxes fund that help care for the poor, but there are still some needs, and frankly, that part of our budget needs a lot more funding. But the third one, and probably the most frequently mentioned one in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, is that the Bible teaches that the church should use its finances to support the income of the pastors of the church. Galatians 6, 6, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14, 1 Timothy 5, 17. And here's, I want you to engage with me here, okay? Some of us might say, well, our church can't afford to do that because of our size, maybe. 
Well, most scholars say that the church of Corinth, which had a large segment of poor people in their church, was no bigger than 40 to 100 people. By any imagination, it was not a big church. And yet it was that church that Paul wrote to in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So Paul is preaching this church and is expecting them to fund a full-time budget for this pastor. Now, let me say this. I'm extremely fortunate to be full-time at this church. And I'll talk about the circumstances of that here in a minute. I decided to go into this detail on a Sunday morning because some of y'all uh, don't always make it to members meetings. And so we talk about this, but two, over two years ago when the church brought me on to be a pastor here, the church decided to accept outside funding more than it already was accepting to allow me to be able to give myself full-time this work. Now you can have your own opinion on this, but I hope that the amount of effort that's been there has been like, hey, it's worth it to have some guy who's working here full-time, making sure things aren't breaking down or whatever. And at that time, the church decided to receive outside support, though it was already receiving other sources of outside income like rent and other things. And so in 2021, our church uh, was receiving 43% of outside funds to meet budget. What that means is that the expenses of the church were only covered 57% of the time by the giving of the church. 43% was required outside of the giving to cover it. So that would be rent from the congregations who used to use our building, and that would be outside support of other good gospel preaching churches that love this church well enough and care about this church's success enough to be giving generously out of their funds to support the ministry here. In 2022, we shaved that down to 41%. And you'll see that on the screen that the red... Uh, part of the circle there is how much of our church's income is needed to receive from outside sources, things that are not your giving. And then this year, through some massive budget cuts, we reduced that another huge chunk, over 10%, to just over or just at 30% of reliance on outside funding. Now, here's why I bring that up. And I'll say this, none of this is meant to guilt anybody. Honestly, I've no, I've never felt more comfortable preaching than I have today. But I started thinking, what if, what if folks in our church got serious about giving, not a, not a huge amount, but just a nominal amount, and did what, what we personally do, and that's give 10% of a median income to the church. It's not hard to calculate that. You just take people who work a job, multiply that by the median household income of the area, 10% of that. Here's what I saw, is that if we did that overnight, our reliance on support would go down to 10%. Now, I only say this to say this to you, is you're assessing what you should give. I'm not gonna like write you a letter and tell you how much y'all should give. I don't, that ain't my job. But what I want to challenge, some of you don't even know, I think, that we use outside funds for me to even be full-time here. And I think maybe, hopefully, some of you value that. But I want to, I want to dispel the myth that your donation doesn't matter. The reality is, is it does. And I made this case on a Sunday night a couple weeks ago. You can listen to my message on 1 Corinthians 9. But I think one of the most strategic things our church could do is to work towards a place where our giving covers our full-time expenses. Because here's what I've watched, as, pa- as churches have had not been able to support a pastor full-time, they lose a pastor or whatever, 
and they can't hire a guy for a year, two years, three years. And so the church flounders. And I'm aware of the fact that I'm replaceable. I'm not, I could die tomorrow. But as a church steps up their generosity, what that will do is enable us to be self-sustaining as a church. And I would imagine that there's no other financial goal that matters more to this church than that. Here's the sixth question. Do you trust that God will reward and supply? Paul closes out this exhortation to his church starting at chapter nine, verse number six. And here's what he says. Look at your Bibles with me in chapter nine, verse number six. He says, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. What is Paul saying there? He's saying there is a connection between your generosity and your rewards. There's a connection between what you give and what you reap. And I think he's talking about spiritual rewards there. We talked a lot about that last week. Verse number seven doesn't leave out the heart. It says that the heart is matter because the heart matters because God loves a cheerful giver. And I think a lot of us, when it comes to biblical generosity, we are just scared. Can we all just agree with that? We're just scared. Because, you know, a lot of us, like we talked about the, last week, we attach a lot of security to our money. Can we admit that this morning? All right. Let's try over here. Can we admit that this morning? We find so much security in, my money, in our money. And here's what we all need to admit. Here's what we all need to admit. At, at the core, giving is a faith issue. It's a faith issue. Do I trust that when I give 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever it is, 25%, do I actually trust God will reward that? Because here's what I believe. I believe if you and I could see how God rewards that in the end, none of us would live a stingy lifestyle. Not a single one. So ultimately that's core, like any other step of obedience, we have to believe not just that God will reward but the Bible also says that God will supply your giving. That's what's amazing. God loves a cheerful giver. God, if he sees you giving generously, he doesn't want you to not be able to give because he uses you and me and his work in supplying the needs of other people. And so verse number 10 tells us that God will multiply the seed that you have sown. Mean this, He's taking this image of a farmer and they would cast out their seed. They didn't have all the fancy planters like we have today, Dennis. They would throw their seed out on the ground. And he says, here's what God's gonna do. As you take your increase and you scatter it through generosity, God's gonna make sure that there's something left in the bag to continue giving. He's gonna multiply your seed. And he's not just gonna multiply so you can keep giving it. He's gonna multiply in the sense that you're gonna receive more rewards than you could ever imagine. You know what I also think about our giving? When we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, none of us are gonna think, you know what? God rewarded me exactly as I thought he would in accordance with my giving. All of us, in accordance with our generosity, we're gonna stand before the Lord and say, wow, he rewarded me way more than my 
piddly offerings deserved. Yeah, I think there might even be some regrets on that day. But Paul says, listen, at the end of the day, if you want to give generously, you have to trust God will reward and supply. And here's what I'll say. Again, personal testimony because that's the only testimony I've got. My wife and I have, have tried to give generously, what we thought was generous at least, and tried to, try to be as aggressive as we could. And I could tell you this right now. God has blessed us financially and materially more than I could have ever, ever imagined. It doesn't even make sense, y'all. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel. I'm just saying it doesn't even make sense how much God has blessed us when we have not had much and we've given a chunk of that that seems like a lot to us and we still have more. I can't promise you anything. I can't promise you there'd be a check in the mail for the exact amount you're gonna write to the church next week. I can't promise you that. I wish I could. But here's what I can tell you. Been at this for a little bit. Some of you have been at it for a lot longer than me and I have never, ever regretted radical generosity. Not once. Not once. And I know on that day, when I stand before my Lord, I certainly won't regret it. In fact, I'll probably regret not doing more, frankly. Friends, I can't tell you how much to give because if I told you 10%, for some of you, that'd be far too little. I actually agree with a guy named John Piper who said this. The question that Jesus drives us to ask again and again is not how much should I give, but rather how much dare I keep? You see, there's one major difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the Great Commission. God has called us as a called out people to take his gospel to every single corner of the world, making sure people don't starve to death as we do it. And I don't know about you, but that is such a radical commission that, that to fund that type of work, it is far too simplistic to settle that with a fixed percentage like 10%. To try and settle that type of work with that type of percentage is simply out of the question. Here's what John Piper says, and I tend to agree with a few caveats. He says, my own conviction is that most middle and upper class Americans who merely give 10% are robbing God. In a world where 10,000 people a day starve to death and many more than that are perishing in unbelief, the question is not what percentage must I give, but how much dare I spend on myself? Truth is, when I knew I was gonna preach this message, I had every intention of trying to lay out carefully 10% in the Old Testament and why I still think that might be how the New Testament Christians thought about their giving, but the reality is that's way, way short of what Jesus preached. Like everything else, what Jesus said is far, far more radical. This morning, the only way I know how to close this message is to read how Paul closed his message on giving to the Corinthian believers. And I ask that you would read with me silently as I read aloud Paul's words in verses six through eight as I think he really is driving home 
the need for this church to practice radical generosity. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Father, you have enriched us more than perhaps any other generation.